0: Welcome to another episode of the NPCs Discuss, where we talk about the video game industry, events, history, controversies, and more. On today's episode, access to classic video game consoles isn't necessarily hard, but the upkeep of so many different consoles as well as the cost of those consoles and games can be taxing. To solve this, many gamers have turned to emulating those consoles and downloading ROM files of the games they so dearly want to play. However, while the possibility of having every single console from the Atari 2600 through the Wii on a single device is there, it doesn't mean that it's legal. If you don't already own the game, then congrats, you have entered the world of piracy. But there is a movement in the video game world to preserve these games via emulation and do it in a legal fashion. But what does emulation actually look like now, and what does its future hold? Let's talk about that in today's episode, Emulation's Future. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor, Anchor.fm. And we're back. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the NPCs Discuss, where we talk about video game industry, events, history, controversies, and more. My name is Travis Sherman, and as always, I am joined by Kyle Inman. Hi, Kyle. What's up? Uh, It's a topic. We actually figured one out. Yeah. Thank you, Microsoft, for coming out and making this kind of
1: pop into our head. Just out of left field with the comments on
0: emulation. Absolutely. So, emulation. I think... We can probably say it here, of course, that we have done emulation ourselves. I've done it. You've done it. We've been involved in the the market of emulation for quite a long time, probably. Um, I would say that, of course, probably some of our earlier days for emulation probably go back to uh, hacking the PlayStation uh, portable, the PSP, and getting emulator files on there. Like, I remember playing an N64 game on a PSP. You know, that was oh, just yeah. bizarre. But neat in the sense, it's like, I'm playing Super Mario 64. But we've been there. We're past a lot of that now. Uh, But are we? But are we? (laughs) Well, that's where the interesting thing comes into play with today's topic, is about emulation's future. The idea for this topic really came from uh, some discussion that actually happened this week. Actually, it was two things. It was an announcement from Microsoft, and it was a talking point from someone at Microsoft. I mean, that's re- that's really where it comes down to, right, Kyle? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, with the uh, announcement of, of course, the 72 games uh, being backwards compatible, or the addition of 72 new backwards compatible games uh, to the Xbox Series family, and um, unfortunately being the last 72. Um, but th- this is also a statement that Microsoft has said before, so... I guess we take it with a grain of salt, but it does have um I don't know, some some finiteness to it. But then you have Phil Spencer coming out of left field, uh with I I don't have the exact quote on on hand. I, I've I got know. it
0: right here. Okay. Alright, so according to Phil Spencer, so he had said this let me see if I can find the where he has said this at. Uh, He was talking with Axios about this, uh, I believe, let's see, this was the 17th and today is the 19th, so this would have been Wednesday. What he said was this, my hope, and I think I have to present it that way as of now, is an industry we'd work, uh, is as an industry we'd work on legal emulation that allowed modern hardware to run any, within reason, older executable, allowing someone to play any game. So, kind of starting off here, at least with this, is kind of hitting some of the heavier things. So let's let's backtrack a little bit on this one, though, and we'll come back around to what Phil Spencer's talking about uh towards the end here and kind of build up on it at least, or or talk about it here at least a little later. Video game emulation. I think enough people out there <coughs> understand exactly what video game emulation is. It is the it is taking the BIOS, the actual software that makes a console run, and using different software, putting all of that together to be able to emulate, to mimic what a classic or even current video game console can do. And then using extracted software from video game cartridges and old video game discs, known for us as ROM files, to be able to synchronize all that up and be able to play games on your computer, your smartphone... Uh, there are people who make their own consoles using Raspberry Pis, basically anywhere to give you that ability to play all the games of of days past. And while emulation isn't necessarily a new thing, it's been going on since the 90s when computers became more and more ubiquitous and easier to get a hold of. People started figuring out how to reverse engineer these consoles to how to reverse engineer getting the files off of the cartridges. And here we are. Uh you know, the emulation market is actually rather booming in in one form, uh, but there there's a big problem with it. And I think the biggest problem, of course, is going to be the legality on stuff. So, Kyle, when it comes to the legal side of things with the emulation part itself, you know, you you've done emulation on games. I I've done the emulation stuff too in, in years past. I mm. can fully admit now I don't actually have any emulation files anywhere here on me anymore. All that stuff has disappeared over the day over the days. But from a legal standpoint, what does it mean for us to be able to actually own like a ROM file? Though nowadays, like, what's the actual rules behind something like that for us to have a ROM?
1: Um, so to my knowledge, uh, the actual rules for for a ROM file is you have to own or have rights to either the digital content, or um, you have to have an original copy uh, of the content via its original media whether it be a cartridge a disc so on and so forth now some of these of course have been converted to uh files and made available through uh sites like good old games is a good example um where you can get some classic uh playstation and playstation 2 games that don't even actually have listings on on sony's store at all so that, that's kind of cool. But they were ones that I, I think some of them were actually originally computer games as well. But even then, I mean, there have been other other instances where, you know, it, it would technically count um, if the file in its entirety, uh, it, as an original file, is contained in a collection that was put out on another console or, you know, like PlayStation 2, if it was like a Konami collection or so on and so forth, right? that would count as, a, as ownership to that particular
0: file. So you're saying that if I took my – like if I went and downloaded a copy of Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time for the Nintendo 64, I'm talking the classic, that's something that I could legally own because I have a physical copy of that game staring right at me.
1: Well, that's kind of where the legality gets a little bit murky. So, I I'm not certain if you can necessarily download it because then you're actually obtaining someone else's file. So technically, no. But if you were to uh rip the file from the actual cartridge yourself uh using uh, the the devices are actually uh somewhat affordable now, but i I want to say they're a flash pro type thing, and you can it, they're for save management, but you can also extract the game files and recompile them essentially into a ROM file, and that would be legal
0: and I think that's where the line gets to be interesting, like you were really alluding to there is that you can't go download it from one spot because it's not the exact file that you have on your cartridge or CD there itself. I guess the bigger difference of course comes down more. So I would think to like the DRM side of it. Like, let's say I have a copy of like, let's go back in time a little bit. Let's say I have a Mm -hmm. copy of Diablo two that came out on a CD and has a CD key on it. If I took that game, installed it on my computer using that CD key and gave it to you, without the CD key, you already own the, it's like, you've got the game here, but you can't do anything with it without the key. You can install Mm -hmm. it, but you may not be able to actually log in and play it until you get that. Is that kind of where we get into that interesting scenario then that, um, it just is kind of that example anyway, is that it's like, well, I've got it here, but I don't have the rest of the stuff to access it.
1: Kind of, but kind of not. I mean, it, yeah, I, I think I, – actually, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one.
0: I was just trying to come up with a more, like, kind of like a, a different example because not everybody has the – like, I hate to say doesn't have the ability, but in reality, nobody here – At least I can't name anybody off the top of my head that I personally know that can take my Ocarina of Time cartridge and pull the the actual files off of it to be able to play in an emulator on my computer. I don't know anybody that can do that. And for the layman, they're not going to have the technology to do anything like that. So that's where you start to see that interesting gray area where I already own the cartridge and someone's offering this file here. It should at least kind of fall into that that I guess fair use part, at least in one sense, because it's like I already own the physical. Now I've got the digital, but you are right. That is definitely an interesting spot to kind of think about it.
1: I, I think that that moves into one of the points we might make later, but I think that's one, one thing that the uh, video game preservation society uh, would be really, really good at, you know, if if you own that file, maybe, You could obtain the file from a legal source uh, for free
0: because it's available. Right, and we had even talked about video game preservation uh, several weeks ago in another Mm -hmm. NPC's Discuss. Uh, But the world of emulation has definitely changed, even just in these few weeks alone, especially with the acknowledgement of someone at the forefront of a large company, especially one of the large video game console companies. I mean, Microsoft does a lot more than just that, but... You know, they're one of the big three. And for Phil Spencer to be able to go ahead and step up and say, we need to make this a legal way to be able to offer these video games out there. But in tandem, of course, we're running into the problem now with their backwards compatibility offering, too. Uh, You know, it's just it's interesting that in just these few weeks, all these other doors have opened up. I mean, hell, uh, I know this is an emulation related, but Apple just decided to go ahead and start offering parts to people to say if you want to try to repair your iphone yourself we'll sell you the screen the camera and a battery if you want to do it and give you access to our manuals you know there there is all that built into it so it's just interesting to see the types of doors that are opening up uh but like going back on the legality part of it anyway though is that one of the interesting things though is that because people can't take their games themselves and actually rip the contents off of them to be able to play in a digital form because there's just really no way for like nobody has that technology just normally sitting around to do that. Um Going and accessing these sites where the files are at is one of the key things to be, to be able to get at least a digital copy of something like this. Now we've had takedowns, especially this last year alone, there was a big, I can't remember what the name of the website was. I know it's not ROM Universe. It was something else. Uh but he had a takedown notice from Nintendo. He got sued by Nintendo. Uh he had a um they attempted to make a permanent injunction against him because uh they won and he lost, of course. Um and he ended up owing Nintendo like a, a, at least for, you know, an individual person that a, quite a bit of money. Right. So like what What exactly is out there? Like, uh, Kyle, you used to work at GameStop, so I would I would figure it's like you know talking with customers, talking with other people that you had in those years past, that maybe you've overheard or, or maybe you have an idea, even in your own personal research on stuff. Uh, what could I do? Like, what could I do with my copy of Ocarina of Time to actually get the digital file from it? Like, do I need to go buy my own hardware? Is there a service I can send it to to pull that stuff off to make a digital copy of it? Like, what what is there for people out there to be able to take advantage of emulation?
1: So nowadays, that that's that's the interesting part. Nowadays, it's a lot easier. Of course, with disc units, you you can actually get programs to read even GameCube discs that are written uh, completely backwards. That was one of the unique aspects of the GameCube, and uh, emulate the data from there and extract the files into ISOs for for personal use. Um, and actually, for something like that. Uh, there are conversion kits that you can buy for like GameCubes to, um, actually get a 3D printed thing to remove the disk drive and put in an SD card slot, um, in that, that port, um, if you're, if you're handy and, you know, want to do some modding to the actual console, uh, but for, for the actual hardware that would use a cartridge, um, It gets a little bit more technical at times. Uh, However, like I said, there are a lot more inexpensive alternatives now, especially like for uh, Nintendo stuff, GameCube and Super NES. um, You can get uh, if you're just wanting to play them. I know the uh, Retrons. um, Actually, there's one that plays NES, Super NES, Genesis. Um, That was what I was
0: about to bring up.
1: Yeah, it it plays all that stuff so that's really cool and then it'll actually uh you can hook via HDMI up through that. Um but then there are other units like that would actually emulate your Game Boy on your PC and they're only about 50 bucks.
0: Okay. And so- th- and with
1: some of those you can actually rip to your computer as well.
0: Okay, so there are at least a few other options out there in the physical sense, at least like I could if my N64 died, I could go find something that probably is a standalone unit that I could pop the cartridge into and just go. Um, But that still doesn't come around really on the digital front, though, in the sense of being able to take those files off of there. Like there may not be a way for me to be able to procure something like that, especially because we're in the midst of a global chip shortage We're in the midst of supply chain problems. So to be able to get access to some of those physical devices to be able to emulate uh, these older titles, you know, with an actual physical cartridge that you have in your possession may end up becoming more and more difficult. And that's why a lot of the question comes up to more of the digital facet of it is like, how can I as an end user actually do that. And that's what I was asking. It's like, if you knew if there were any services out there where I could just pop my cartridge into a, into a, a a postal service, you know, a a post office um, flat rate box and just send it off and then get back a a flash drive that has it on there.
1: See, and on that front, not to my knowledge, unfortunately. Um, And I, I think that that gets into another legal realm of, you know, someone doing it for you all of a sudden becomes illegal. Uh, But if you're doing it to your own files, then it's not so illegal.
0: Okay, I I can I can understand that then, you know, that there could be that that circumventing around. It's like, well, I do own it and I do own the digital file. So I I get that having someone else do it for you is definitely another interesting hurdle to go through to get it done. But yes, that does present that same problem.
1: But then there's the other aspect that is really cool. If you've already got those files and you don't necessarily have the hardware or can't find the emulators because there's a lot of emulators that are being attacked um, as well because they've, they've gone and, you know, they've used the original source code. And on the complete opposite front, now there's a lot of emulators around that have come up with their own unique source code and... You know, some of them actually run some of the games better than the original hardware does. But you can actually access those files
0: via developer mode on your Xbox. Right, and that is actually a very interesting thing that is available there. But I, I want to kind of circle back just just a tiny bit here to what you were just talking mm-hmm. about about some of the enhancements, um, about like w- the value that emulation does provide to some some games. I mean, we. Mm-hmm um you know we see of course you know not only just the ability to to play classic titles you know things that we grew up with that we love that it's just harder to procure you know like what i mentioned in the intro there is that it's you know there is a big cost associated with buying an old console and even potentially an older copy of a game because if you want something that looks good and works well you may end up paying hundreds of dollars to be able to get even just like the console a single controller and that one game um But where emulation, at least this is why I was circling back around sticks out, is with those enhancements. Now, besides playing something you want to play there just for the fun of it, look at what emulation has brought to the table in regards to some of those enhancements as they relate to, let's use Breath of the Wild as the example. So Breath of the Wild, of course, uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, uh, most recent uh, Zelda, like standalone Zelda title, not a remake, not a remaster, all open world, uh, inspired, of course, by Skyrim. Is available, of course, came out on the Nintendo Switch back in 2017, I think, and people in the emulation community were able to put this on their computers, and by using different texture and shader packs, as well as other enhancing tools, were able to bring the game up to a full 4K 60 frames per second experience, and I gotta tell you, if Nintendo could have done that from like day one with the switch, like put focus on 4k stuff, or even if we do get a switch pro in the future, I mean, right there is a good example of where emulation has actually been successful in making the, this quality content even like have even more quality to it with those enhancements. Uh, I mean, what's your take on, on stuff like that on what the community does with those types of uh, modifications.
1: Well, in, in in that aspect, you got to think about nowadays, all, all, or a lot of your your consoles and your hardware, uh, your computer, it's connected to the internet all the time. Everything's always receiving updates. Old consoles didn't do that. You know, when was the last time you know a Sega Dreamcast got a, an update to the the actual hardware? You know, to 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 the software that that ran the the games. Never. So I mean. That there's a lot of things that were, you know, they, they fixed in, in the games later on, but, you know, some of the early games in a, a, a console's life could have benefited from from some of that. Like, think about Super Nintendo, where they were at the end of their life versus the beginning of the life, you know, coming out with Chrono Trigger at the end. That was a phenomenal game, and I, I guarantee you they would have never thought it was possible when this, the console first started up.
0: Right. And, you know, exactly there is that, yeah, as as developers have more time with the console and more updates come out and more changes to the software and firmware underneath that are driving the hardware, offer those improvements, then, yeah, games that come out later on are probably going to have an advantage over the games that. Uh, came out when the console first launched you know and that's and and even so like with older stuff you know obviously no firmware more updates no patches and stuff but they're getting better about figuring out how to utilize memory how to utilize uh the graphics processing in these older consoles to be able to make that stuff
1: right and so it, it in turn they can make some older games run smoother run better fix problems for instance it was only what uh year and a half, two years ago, that in Mario 64, someone finally fixed the bug with the smoke.
0: Hmm, okay. I wasn't aware of that one.
1: Yeah, there there was a bug with the animation that actually made the smoke look really bad and just wonky on the 64 version, and it carried over even into the Switch version of the game. However, uh, one small line of code actually gave it the look it was supposed to have. And someone figured that out like two years ago, a year and a half ago. So, I mean, emulation um, gives us the ability, gives people the ability to revisit those old games, find the problems, make the tweaks, and, you know, make a more polished version of the original product.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It's, It's the fact that it's fallen into users' hands to be able to make those improvements is you know it's it's an interesting take but of course for us not even in emulation itself even in mods people have made different enhancements to games that you know already look good but they've offered different things that make it look better or you end up you know in the case of mods with skyrim and you got thomas the tank engine for a dragon instead uh but
1: well and you know it kind of leads into an interesting point that w- with that happened with grand theft auto just recently i mean they they're re-releasing the games that they just pulled from the store so they could release the trilogy and someone had actually put out mods and at, Rockstar came after them but they put out mods for the games to run better than they originally did and the games looked fantastic on PC like you could play San Andreas and it looked like a modern game
0: I believe that was the one that I covered in the uh in the NPC's quick save from It was either Thursday or Tuesday of this week. I cannot remember. But you're you're absolutely right, is that it's like it's fallen to the users in a lot of these enhancements and show that it's like these enhancements are very possible. And so emulation has offered a net bonus to be able to experience games in a way that maybe weren't necessarily realized when they first launched, you know, due to these additional enhancements. And, of course, uh, players just getting their hands on them and figuring out exactly how to put new shaders, new textures to enhance all of that, to make it a better experience. Uh, so even with that part said though, is that it doesn't matter how much you contribute to it, unless the company's on board with the way you're doing things to their game, uh, much less the fact you even have their game in your possession in a illegal form, I guess we'll put it that way. Um, you know, you're not out of any hot water whatsoever. I mean, you're in pretty deep because again, it comes back to the issue of piracy and the fact if you can actually own that digital copy or not, that, that, logical copy of a ROM right but I mean it also comes down to the
1: preservation side of it too you know not only do people want to play the modded games but maybe they want to play different iterations of the game I know with like I I just bought that uh Zelda Game & Watch and it came with the original like Game Boy not not the Game Boy Color version but the Game Boy version of link's awakening yeah that's right and they released that on the switch a few
0: years back so they did yes and also we have nintendo even embracing on the emulation front though to a point i guess but it's their own release the nes (laughs) classic and the snes classic right which really didn't have any enhancements to them anyway uh, the only big thing, of course, is that like you could put them up on a, on a, a 4K TV if you want. They're going to render so much, but you could you they can did make have little... a
1: game that was only released as something that you could pirate originally. True. Star Fox 2.
0: That, there's that. And then I think there was another one on there as well. I mean, hell, look at the games that are coming out even on the switch right now for the virtual consoles there. Uh, Those games that are on there, there's some of them that weren't even released in the states that some people actually did have to pirate that actually did have to bring them into the states in a different form just to be able to actually enjoy them. Mm -hmm. That's not Mm -hmm. that's like that's not a different thing. But we have seen slow progression, of course, in the industry of. Like all those different companies adopting emulation in some form or another, however, in very interesting forms, it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all situation for the way emulation works, at least as people would like it to work. It's, it's very console-centric and locked down, and of course it's behind a paywall, which isn't to say that the paywall is a problem. I'm sure that there's enough people out there who would want to be able to play these in any way, shape, or form on any device that they could. But to be able to play stuff in the virtual console, you not only need to purchase a Switch – but you also need to sign up for Nintendo Switch Online. If you want to be able to play N64 and Genesis games, you got to sign up for the expansion pack. And then you open up that library to you. You know, there, there's not a platform agnostic situation here. I think that's the word I want to use. Uh, there's not a situation like that where you can play all of these different classic titles in just one nice, neat, and easy package that's managed by all the different companies.
1: Unfortunately.
0: Yeah, or even at least in their own individual settings where it's not specific to their platform. I mean, we we can kind of start talking now, I think, more on the Xbox front itself. So back during the Xbox One days, there was a concern about how backwards compatibility was going to be handled because the Xbox 360 natively handled backwards compatibility for the Xbox for the Xbox 1 there was a lot of talk saying okay well, we're not sure if we're going to do this whatever and then Phil Spencer on stage at one of the E3s dropped the bomb that says we're bringing Xbox 360 and Xbox backwards compatibility to the Xbox 1 we're doing that that's going to happen here's the first games we're coming out with and ever since then i think that was probably like 2015 maybe um ever since Sounds then bad, right? yeah ever since then that's 6 years now to the date we've been getting constant releases of backwards compatible games uh from Microsoft on Xbox, whether they're, they're not even just first party titles, but now we've moved up to the advent of things like game pass where game pass works on your computer, works on your phone, works on your Xbox. And now you can access this massive slew of titles for 15 bucks a month. So
1: at what point are we going to see services potentially crossing paths? Because at, at when you're when you're paying for the uh, another service you know
0: it does enter a very interesting territory because yeah. look at the number of subscription services like I, I want you to really think about the number of subscription services it becomes a you netflix have
1: netflix hulu scenario you know it does
0: it does yeah you've got to weigh everything out like i i subscribe to netflix i've got disney plus i've got hbo max i've got um i'm doing the subscription of course for amazon prime and all the stuff that comes with that i've got my subscription right. for game pass i've got I'm sure there's probably another one or twenty that are sitting around somewhere out there that I'm just bleeding money into for whatever reason. But you are right that it's just another subscription to add on to be able to do this small subset of things. You know, the content being different, and that's what I was talking about—a more platform-agnostic situation where I still don't know if I'm using the right word. I don't care anymore. A a, a non-platform-specific situation where you can have everything in one nice neat and easy package to get to without having to jump through all the hurdles of getting it. And that's where it's interesting, of course, that we lead up to where a lot of this came from. uh, Today's topic is about what Phil Spencer had said is talking about that the industry really needs to look at a way in not only a form of video game preservation, but also to offer a service to our customers, uh, a legal way of being able to emulate games.
1: I definitely think so. Like why can't we find a way to... I mean, even when it comes down to the core of it, the uh, the DVD player in a PlayStation is, at its core, a DVD player. You know, at, at its core, same thing for a Dreamcast. You know, you move up to the, the next-gen consoles. It, or, well, I guess back then it was a disc player, but... And then it moved up to a DVD ROM.
0: Yep, and then Blu-ray.
1: And then Blu-ray. But I mean, what what is it but just a disk at that point? Why why can't we just download the codex and, you know, be set? Why can't they just sell the codex for, for the drive and you just run the codec and it works? Right. You, know, you pop in a PlayStation disk and I can play PlayStation 2 on my computer.
0: Right, and we've we've already seen like The way the industry is already changing is is it's very well known, or at least it should be very well known, that console manufacturers don't really make a great return on the hardware. Where you see most of their sales coming from are games and their service platforms. Mm -hmm. Microsoft rakes in all the money from the games that they sell, the accessories they sell, as well as Game Pass. Because they do offer, really focusing on Game Pass again, is really the value behind it. Sony is the same way. I mean, Sony made more revenue on services than it did on actual game sales. I mean, hell, they only sold, like, I think between 4 and 6 million of their own games, like own first-party games, versus, like, I think 60 or 70 million games from other uh, publishers that were, like, cross-platform, you know, released multi-platform. And so it's already shown there that the the value of having a service like that is there. And so you're right. Why can't you go and do that why can't that be the next phase of things is that for like let's say of course because obviously you know they have to put the time into developing it they want to do everything that they can to make sure that it's a solid product 200 bucks i i would think that'd be almost the price like 200 dollars, for the actual software that you put on your computer to be able to play something like a playstation 5 or an xbox series game you think so the, there's a there's a reason why I say that. There's a reason why I, I kind of went with that price point, and here's where this goes down to, is first and foremost is that not every computer, of course, is obviously going to be the same no matter what.
1: Mm-hmm. With the
0: amount of R&D that's going to need to go into supporting all those different types of configurations at least to, to test them out just to see like what happens, what's going to go on, um, as well as, of course, the security stuff that's going to have to go underlying into the program too – Uh, You know, it's going to require, I think, that additional expense to it. And at $200, to be able to buy this new software that allows you to play these games on your PC without literally buying brand new hardware every single console revision, you know, it ends up not being – I don't think that's necessarily the worst price point ever. Granted, I'm kind of making more comparisons in my head to more like top-tier professional software that you'd actually pay for. Like back when Adobe wasn't doing their whole creative cloud software solution where you had to pay a recurring subscription, uh, getting yourself a copy of Photoshop or Lightroom or uh, any any of their stuff whatsoever could cost you anywhere between like 100 to $250, if not even more, for bundled packages. So – that's just another one of those things that it's like $200 seems like probably where the reasonable cost of software would be. But then for those older consoles, okay, I don't know if I like I should be charging $200 for the software necessary to run Nintendo 64 games. You know, humor it. Okay, I'll sell it to you for 64 bucks. Cool, there you go. You know, stagger it based on the, the age of it, I suppose, though. Uh, but no, I, I kind of went just with $200 based on what other solutions have been for other high-tier products, and let's say you throw a, a PlayStation 5 emulator that you you buy from Sony or an Xbox Series emulator that you buy from Microsoft, you throw it on your PC. Well, we both have AMD Ryzen processors, and I have an AMD uh, Radeon graphics card. You know, mm-hmm. I know you've got your NVIDIA card, but I've got basically what are effectively the bare bones in one form or another of what's inside an Xbox and a PlayStation right now. Right. You know, in a manner of speaking, of course. But that's why I posed the $200 just kind of there. I mean, what's your take on it? So
1: here, here's my take. I think it should be free. And I think we're kind of moving there. Nintendo's a little slow on it because, you know, they're just starting the membership thing. They're just starting to get it, you know. Okay. But they, they still don't have, you know, chat at all, but... I think we're moving towards a scenario potentially where it could be like Microsoft and Sony are going to have stores like Valve has with Steam. Okay. That they- they'll offer potentially a library of titles that were in their you know previous consoles, and th- th- this is all speculation, but I I, I see a. a- a future that has emulation and it existing successfully this this has to this this is probably how it's going to have to happen is that each of the companies is going to have their own online service similar to steam and you'll be able to buy those classic games or just pay for a membership and it'll be the same as like xboxes maybe a little bit closer to like how PlayStation now is where they offer a larger library since maybe they'll have larger libraries at that point. I know Microsoft is very interested in obtaining rights to, you know, games that aren't even necessarily theirs. You know, they, they just want Mm -hmm. to, to hold the rights so they can put it out there. I think so people can play it. Okay. But this also kind of leans into the whole thing I was talking about with, uh, the importance of nintendo how they're getting with their their online memberships and trying to connect their their different services and their their different consoles so
0: right so i guess when we're talking about the emulation sense you're you're really more so referring to a lot more of like the approach to the classic titles itself and not necessarily forward thinking in the sense of existing systems that are out there now where if sony decided to say for the next release like let's say the playstation 5 pro they're not going to release hardware here's software you can buy instead to run on your your pc you're talking more about really a lot of the actual like classic classic emulation stuff um more than anything right
1: I I would like for it to work both ways, but I know that's very wishful and well, wildly unrealistic thinking, you know, for me to, to be able to log into N- Nintendo's website and plug in a cartridge to, you know, a device that may r- be able to rip a, I would to love, a computer. I
0: would love to see but, you create a custom-made cartridge port for every single Nintendo cartridge out there on your computer. I need you to do it.
1: You need me to do it? you know how many of those devices I would have to buy? I think that you have to buy a unique one for each type of cartridge.
0: Cable management would be a bitch on the inside of that console. Oh, hell but, yeah. But, okay, even so, I was just like, you know, I that was just that. would uh, be cool, though. You had made, that, you had made the, the slot comment there, and that's why I thought that was just funny to add on. So, yeah. uh, so okay, so l- let's put the scenario kind of a little bit, like, we kind of sum up exactly what you're talking about here, is that you're talking about a storefront that exists for each of the different uh console manufacturers effectively like a microsoft one a sony one and a nintendo one and a storefront that allows you to purchase whichever games they have in there from them more so going to be probably first party titles than necessarily third party titles and either run them in some sort of external client or run them within the actual storefront itself that as soon as you find a game in there you pay for it and you hit play it just opens up in there and it's running on their actual software to make it work is that about what you're you're going with so you're getting it for free the the software part of it but the actual game you're you're what's driving the actual sales and and monetary gain for the companies right 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 okay i then okay i can i can totally get behind that absolutely no problem again i just want to reiterate though that the $200 idea was more focused at the current generation consoles that we have now, if Microsoft and Sony decided to say, forget it, no more hardware, here's the software if you want to do it this way, you know? and then You know, honestly, if they did it, it
1: that way, if if they did it that way, because so few computers have Blu-ray disc readers, because they're such an expensive component for computers, um, uh, they would have to bundle it with a Blu-ray disc reader. Well, they would potentially. have to bundle that expensive expensive software with a blu-ray disc reader because even even modern computers that have disc drives i don't think i've seen maybe but a handful that have blu-ray right
0: but the but i so blu-ray readers are actually very inexpensive you can actually buy a blu-ray reader for your pc for like i think 30 to 40 bucks uh the the, internal ones yeah the internal ones the bigger difference though on that where the cost comes down to is the actual software to read the blu-rays that's where your cost is going to get to be more like you could buy um cyberlink i think is what it was cyberlink uh was the company like is a bit has been a big company of course for uh like video software on computers i I really want to say cyberlink i think that's it whatever uh but their software itself can run you like a hundred dollars but that's there because they have the licensing built into their software to be able to decode blu-rays ah that
1: makes sense
0: Yeah, that's why it's like when you'd go and buy, like, let's say you go buy a brown box computer from Dell and it comes with a CD drive in there, but then it says it or DVD drive and it says it comes with uh, Cyberlink in it or whatever it is, you know, for your DVDs that comes with it because that license is there and the software is built to be able to decode those videos that you put in there to be able to decode the movies you put in there. That's where the expense comes from. You could buy a blu-ray drive to your heart's content and burn blu-rays of whatever, but the actual video content, the encrypted stuff requires those decoders to be able to actually get to them.
1: That makes Um, sense.
0: But even so you are right. Is that it's like, yeah, they'd have to sell some sort of feature like that, or they just go the route of no longer offering disc-based games. And we just go all digital.
1: Well, I mean, even, even that in that sense, because each of the, the, now that you're saying that, because I'm, I'm thinking about it, uh, even specifically, I want to say it was the PS2, uh, they actually burned something into the center ring that was encoded that the disk drive on the, the PS2 had to read that center ring first.
0: Xbox was the same way. I think it was Xbox 360 where you could actually see like what looked like a barcode in the middle of the disk itself.
1: Like yeah, in that middle yeah. ring,
0: you could actually see like an Xbox logo inlaid there, but then you could also see weird striping that went out instead of like the normal circular striping within the disc. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, and
1: it was like, yeah. in, like inside the burn area, like it wasn't actually in a spot that would normally be burned on the disc. And that like, I think PlayStation was the first one to try that, but yeah, I mean, it it stopped it from being actually read in different devices. So,
0: right. So I don't know if we've, I don't actually even know if we've gotten really off topic here. I think we've actually stayed pretty well on topic with what this is just kind of thinking more about like what a future could really hold. But uh let, let's actually put that into more context. It's like, what does the future actually hold for emulation now that, you know, Phil Spencer has kind of put out these comments? I mean, yeah, are you going to be like, able to
1: buy just those decoders for your drive? And yeah, you know, Buy a PlayStation Two decoder for fifteen bucks. Buy a PlayStation Three one for thirty bucks. You know. Yeah. Whether how, it's how like is a. It work?
0: Let me let me go ahead and put it like this then. So here's how I see the future of it going, and I think you're absolutely right. Is that if they did come out with a legal option to be able to emulate, what I actually see is something very similar that I've seen in uh, my industry where I work, um, and it's a way to be able to lock down software that you can actually buy the software no problem or, or not buy the software, but you, you can download the software for free to your heart's content, whatever, but you have to purchase a security key. It's a USB, uh, just a little, it looks like a USB drive. You plug it in, but it actually has the decoding method in there to be able to um, unlock the software and actually be able to use it. That That's a pretty normal thing for a lot of the software that I've come across in my industry. Um, mm-hmm. And that could end up being the case, is that here's the software, but then you're going to have to pay us the 40 to $50 for our USB key that actually unlocks it. And this could be one of those, like, highly partitioned things, highly locked down things <coughs> that only allows, you know, the particular software to run if it's plugged in. Yeah, and it might be something that, you know, in order to
1: obtain that USB key, you might actually have to, like, contact the company let them connect to your computer to read you know a file on the drive to actually make sure that you own that you know that drive or you know you're in possession of this computer right now to send you the key yeah like just to just as a security thing i, w- I would imagine
0: but I, I would imagine a multi I, I would imagine a multi-tier thing similar to the way that those like titan usb keys for like logging into things will work is that you have your key with you, you pop that into your laptop, your your desktop, whatever, and then you have to put in like a special pin code or what have you. But I would imagine that it would be like you boot up the software, you plug that security key in, and then you log in with credentials that are assigned to that USB key. And then that altogether, like that uh, decrypts what's on the key as you're running the software, and then that's what allows you to access the content itself. You can access the storefront yeah. all you want and buy all the different games. But to actually run the software, that's where the USB key comes in. So that's where I kind of see the future going to more than anything. I don't necessarily see it on on Microsoft's front. And the only reason for that is because Xbox games already run on a Windows kernel. They already run in that environment. And so for a Windows PC, I don't actually see them going this route. I see for more of the legal emulation side of things is just more – more growth in game pass where they're able to do so to be able to incorporate more of these older titles that were released on the Xbox all the way up through the Xbox series line. That's all that I see them doing. It's going to be Sony and Nintendo that are going to have to leave the charge from their part because of their own proprietary software that they use on their systems to be able to make their games work. That's going to, they're going to be the real holdouts for that. And that's where I see stuff like the USB security key from say like Sony Uh, Nintendo, I don't actually know what Nintendo would do.
1: You know, and once again, it comes back down to those online profiles. They're they're still moving into this whole realm of everything's connected, everyone's connected, to the point where we're still using friend codes in, in 2021, you know. It doesn't really make sense why we can't use headsets on our switch when you know you can on on certain games and most games that would require it you you're not able to unless you use your cell phone
0: and that that's exactly another big thing is that nintendo still lags behind in the online yeah. space and so they're going to be the ones that are going to take some time to actually really sort that out but at least yeah, on Sony's. They need to make front, some
1: strides.
0: Yeah, exactly. They do. But at least on Sony's front, I could see them going the route of that USB key to be able to provide that connectivity that we see, you know, from some of these other uh software options that are out there that aren't gaming related. Uh, I see them being doing that and then Microsoft continuing down the route of Game Pass. That's probably what it's gonna be.
1: I could see that. Um To that note, I would I could also see um we've also we we've already seen it a lot from microsoft but i could see sony potentially picking up more companies um to be under the playstation umbrella they they just picked up housemark you know and that was a major one for them after the release of returnal um i don't know i i i see picking up companies in order to obtain licenses for older games is a big step for for microsoft and and Sony at this point.
0: That may end up being one of the only ways to actually truly start to push some of these games to be that because I don't think you're going to see standalone companies actually handling their own managed online service or what have you to be able to handle emulating some of these older titles. You need a bigger player in the industry to help drive some of that. And you're right to do that, whether it's going to be some sort of mutual exclusivity without actually purchasing the studio or buying the studio.
1: Right. And and then maybe we'll actually get to see re-releases of classic titles that have been hidden in the shadows for years because the licensing is in limbo.
0: Agreed. I mean, one interesting thing, of course, and um, I'll mention this now because I think we're pretty close to wrapping up, is that uh, it was a couple weeks ago that GoldenEye 007 for the Nintendo 64 recently came off of a... Uh, Ban list in Germany, and it had been there since it released 24 years ago. It was set to come off of the list last year, but due to its level of uh, of the violence that in it and such, and of course because uh, Germany, is like well, Germany is a part of the EU, so anything that flies there in Germany, of course, is going to go through the rest of the EU. So it was banned for that long. It came off the list. It came mm-hmm. off the list. Became available, but that's great and all and it may end up in nintendo's virtual console and it's a game that people have like you know longed hope that would come back out in some sort of legal form but the licensing rights behind any of the james bond games is always such a nightmare and has always been such a headache because of i think it's mgm i think it's uh eon i think it's the actual estate of um, Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond. There's a lot of this back and forth on the licensing where James Mm -hmm. Bond games and actually trying to bring some of that stuff back just takes forever to do. And and it's like, it's like, okay, cool. That one's going to be able to come back, but that's just, that's just a good example of where licensing is going to end up being that problem. But Because Rare made the game, and now Rare is owned by Microsoft, but that title transferred to someone else wherever, now it's in a very interesting limbo. And how many other titles out there, how many other classic video games are even like that in that same vein?
1: Exactly, exactly. But, you know, to the same aspect, just seeing it come off the ban list and hearing about the movement, you know, it had just in the last couple years where it could have potentially been on even the Rare replay as a redux version um, that got pulled. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, there, There's, there's, there's a lot of stuff I think that's happening behind the scenes that we're not seeing. Uh, but I wish more was being said about it. I do too. I really do. And I, Leaving people in the dark, I I think only leads to, you know, the the shady practice of, of people downloading emulators and and downloading ROM files, which I I, I don't promote. I, I had done in the past, but like you said earlier in the the podcast, you don't currently own, and neither do I own any ROM files that I, I don't actually currently own rights to and have, you know, either bought or made myself, so there, there's that, but I, I wish I had more ability to play all of my games, you know, in a singular location, or, you know, for that matter, some of the games that I'm not able to play, because they don't make hardware for them anymore,
0: I wish I was able to play them again. And that's the same for me, too but anything else you want to add about the potential future for emulation or you think we've actually got a pretty good handle on it?
1: I I think we've got a good handle on it. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens, especially since, you know, I, I, I thought RetroArch would have been taken off Microsoft and it looks like we're going to be leaning in, further into embracing the emulation and even, you know, uh MVG, who recently worked on, on uh, the port to Quake, uh, so congrats to him um, breaking into the industry, uh, has said this is a major stride, you know, with RetroArch being on Microsoft, with it being able to, the developer mode being able to be accessed so easily. I think the future for ROMs and the future for emulation for that matter Uh, of classic software is here and it's gonna get real real big in the next five years
0: i truly hope so kyle i truly hope so but with that that is a topic for all of you so with that that is the end of this npcs discuss talking about emulation so with that, thank you so much, everybody for tuning into this week's episode. If you are a member of the video game industry and would like to share your thoughts in a future episode, please drop us a line of course, on all of our different social media platforms or email us at the npcs. at gmail.com. We will reach out to you. Of course, if a topic that relates to your position in the industry uh, happens to come up with that, Of course, you can also catch us anyway on our social media. Check out what we got going on there. Check us out over on facebook.com slash the NPCs podcast or check us out over on Twitter at the NPCs podcast. You can go ahead and listen to all of our other episodes over on our homepage at uh, anchor.fm slash the-wc-podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform as well, too. And, of course, be sure to check out all of our other news that we put up through the week, too. We do two quick saves a week, every Tuesday and Thursday. And, of course, be sure to check out our news live streams on Saturday at 8 p.m. Mountain Time on YouTube and Facebook. Again, thank you so much, everybody, for checking out this episode. We will catch you all in the next one. Laters.